This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. For the past several months, we've been looking uh, at the hard sayings of Jesus and what we mean by that. I I feel like I say the same thing every time. Um, So uh, in the hard sayings, they're there, it's not like chocolate where you put it in your mouth and it just dissolves very easily and it's very savory and very good. But um, it's a lot like hard candy. It's difficult to swallow by itself. So you have to kind of let it sit there for a while. And as you sit there, you ever have a charm pop or anything like that? The more you, uh, you, know, you suck on that, then um, the, uh, the feeling that the flavor is, uh, is savory, but as you get deeper to the core, that's where you get to the surprises. And that's where um, you really start to enjoy what you have. And that's what they're meant to be, the hard sayings of Jesus. They're difficult to hear at first and really difficult to digest. But as you digest, as you sit on these words, um, it, they're really intended to melt our heart into Christ. And so, um, and this passage is, is a pretty well-known passage. If you really look at the passage, it's, it's a pretty dull passage. You know, it's really about what? It's about, it's about tension in the kitchen between two sisters. That's really what it's about. It's a very dull passage. But why is it in here? And, and Luke includes this passage for several reasons. One, you would never write fiction like this in any respect, even now. He included it in here because it wasn't meant to be fiction. This is nonfiction. These events really happened, and it's news. Secondly, the insights tell us a little bit more about who Jesus is. But the third thing, this is really important in a sense that it speaks to this passage, so well known, in and out of the church. Why? It speaks to us, the core of who we are. It speaks to everybody in this room because everybody in this room is either a Martha or a Mary here. You know, and that's why we have mixed feelings about what Jesus says to Martha. We have mixed feelings about this. This passage, it shows us that character is not just a, a one-time thing. You know, it's not in some grand, exciting moment or adventure, at the tail end of an adventure. Character is not what you see, you know, with generals and kings in battle. But it's in the mundane things. You ever read uh, Oscar Wilde, um, Our Town? You know, it, the, the emphasis is that the beauty of life is found in the mundane, the everyday things that we experience, breakfast in the morning, you know, turning off your light at night. It's these kind of things. The character is demonstrated most in everyday situations. And, and what's going on? In this case, in this passage, um, Martha is trying to serve. And she's actually trying to serve Jesus. You know, she loves Jesus. So she wants to serve Jesus. But she's being rebuked. And it seems really, really harsh. And that's why it doesn't sit well with this. Because Jesus, um, knowing that Martha is serving him, rebukes her. And when you read the words, they seem, they're difficult. Like I said, it's a hard saying. But Jesus is ever 
the consummate teacher, and there are three things that he's trying to teach Mary, and really three things he's trying to teach us. And they all revolve around what happens when you enter into a relationship with Jesus. Okay, he's going to teach us that the gospel gives us a new agenda. And the reason why it gives us a new agenda is because we have a new confidence. And the reason why we have a whole new confidence is because there is a greater sense of intimacy. There is a real or true intimacy when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. So first, a new agenda. The gospel radically transcends our cultural and social or societal agendas. Here's what's going on, right? Mary was at one point working with Mar- Martha. Martha had invited Jesus uh, over uh, to her home. And uh, the Bible here states over and over throughout the Gospels how much Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and actually Lazarus. Uh, they were brother and sisters um, in the home. And, and so Mary is... Uh, just imagine Mary working with Martha to serve Jesus, to prepare this wonderful meal. But then at one point, Jesus comes over and Mary leads Martha to go sit at Jesus' feet and learns from Jesus. That's what you see in verse 38. And, and this is an amazing thing. I mean, in those days, rabbis actually sat and taught. They sat and taught you. You know, today our teachers actually stand to teach and everybody else is seated. But in those days, it was the rabbi that sat. And everybody else would stand around or sit by him and they would teach. But the one thing that rabbis would never do is what? They would never teach women. Teachers back then never taught women. Women were never taught. And so this is a remarkable thing that's going on, you know, because, uh, you know, women had no sta- social standing whatsoever. Um, and, it, you know, history for centuries has been cruel to women, right? But what does this tell you here? That by Jesus... Mary has a home. Mary has a place. Mary has standing. Mary is accepted. Mary is loved by Jesus. And because she knew she was loved, Mary knew she was loved, she didn't just go with the cultural tide. She didn't just stay in the kitchen. She easily just took a step to act on what she knew. She went to be with Jesus. She went to be taught. And that's remarkable. And that means that Mary essentially knew the difference between something that's urgent, an urgent calling, and what's important, what's most important, the priority. Mary was able to separate the urgent need from the priorities in her life. Because a lot of times they conflict. We call it the tyranny of the urgent. She was able to separate the two. Most people, you know, if you think about it, today, if you look at everybody here in this room, we all have high aspirations, Everybody wants to do something great. Everybody wants to be something great. Now, come on, we don't really want to be great. Really, when we say we want to be great, we just want to be rich, right? Or we just we want to just uh, enter into a career that's long-standing in our lives. You know, nobody here has the aspiration. Thousands of years from now, they will know my name. There's not a single person here, you know, in the world that really has that as a goal in their life. But look at Mary's life. John chapter 12 Mark chapter 14 in particular, Jesus says the things that Mary has done will be remembered for all time. And thousands of years later, after this passage alone, we're still talking about Mary and what Mary has done. You know, the gospel transcends all social trends. You know that this isn't fiction because nobody would buy this kind of fiction. Here's, here's who's the hero of the story. It's a woman. A woman, it's not a high-placed woman, it's not a queen. It's really just a, a common woman, 
you know, working in the kitchen, who left her work to go be with her rabbi. That's really what the story is. There's nothing to the story. And yet, she's regarded here. Thousands of years later, she has become great. And it's because her priorities, what does she really do? Her priorities just played out in her everyday life. That's really what she did. Her relationship with Jesus, it gave her the confidence to abandon what was urgent so she could head and cling to what was most important. Her agenda has shifted. And in seeing that, she bucked all cultural tides, all social tides, and we also see Jesus. In Jesus, she is accepted. She is loved. The gospel transcends all of our view of society and what society accepts, what culture accepts, so we can go beyond that gives us a whole new agenda. Now, why does it do that? Second, the gospel gives us a radical confidence. A radical confidence. If you look at the text, it says uh, in verse uh, 38, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Basically, what was happening was um, the disciples and Jesus were on their way towards another place, but Jesus actually took a pit stop. He actually went into Martha and Mary's house. You know, he entered into a village. He intentionally did this. And we know this because if you look at the other Gospels, Jesus had a very intimate relationship with Mary and Martha. He loved that family. He loved that home. And so they were on their way. The disciples were going one way. Jesus decided to stop, enter into the home of Martha and Mary, and um, made his way there uh, and and made this special trip. He loved this family. And, And basically, who is Martha? Martha is a leader. Martha is a doer. Martha is a thinker. She's very, very practically minded. You know, uh, Martha is tactical. She knows when you have a project, she knows the steps that need to be done. She knows how to get there. She knows what needs to be done to complete something. Uh, and she's serving. She's serving. But what happens? She's distracted. She's so distracted. You know, she invites Martha, she, Martha invites Jesus into her home. That's a very unusual thing because like we said, women had very little social standing. So if you think about who would run that home between the sisters and brother, it would be Lazarus. But you don't really even hear about Lazarus here in this passage. It's all Martha. Martha does the inviting. Martha does the serving. So not only is she a doer, that meant that she controlled the finances of the home. That meant that she actually controlled, you know, what's going to get eaten in the home. She controlled who gets to eat in the home with her, the guest, the guest list. So, you know, she's very type A, she's running the house, but in this case, she's the one that's being rebuked. This leader of the home is being rebuked. Martha represents the 20% of a church that always represents 80% of the work. You know, we always say that, you know, 20% of the people always do 80% of the work. Um, That's what she represents. And it's not like she's doing secular work. Jesus doesn't rebuke her and say, you know, the work you're doing is not good work because it's not ministry. Actually, what's Martha doing? She's preparing a meal for Jesus. She is doing ministry. She's vocationally at this moment serving Christ, loving Christ in her ministry. You know, and yet she's being rebuked. Because she's distracted. You know, Jesus says, you are worried and troubled by many things. Mary was serving, but she left to go sit with Jesus. But Martha's frustrated, you know. You know and she's really in the condition that she's in because she's really not doing what Mary was doing. You know, that's why she's in the condition she's in. 
And, you know, she's thinking in her mind, this poor meal, you know, Jesus has literally made his, made, went out of his way to come to our house. And we have all this stuff to do. And this is going to be an embarrassment of a meal. It's going to be an embarrassment to my family, an embarrassment to me and my work. And she's stressed and she's frustrated and she makes two comments. They're really two pleas to Jesus, right? She says, Lord, do you not care? And the second thing she says is, tell her, tell Mary to help me. Tell her then to help me. Do you not care? Tell her then to help me. The first thing, do you not care? Martha's basically saying what? Jesus, do you notice what I'm doing? Do you notice me? She's working to gain Jesus' attention. She's working to earn a relationship with Jesus through her work. So her work really is not for Jesus, but it's for herself, for her own sense of worth. Because if Jesus would just notice me, then I will know I'm worthy. So her agenda is really to prove herself, to prove her sense of worth to Jesus. Don't you care? It's a plea. It's a begging. Notice me. Acknowledge me. Care for me. Love me. And when you don't do that, it makes me anxious. It makes me worried. I feel empty. My soul feels broken. And it makes her irritable. It makes her frustrated. And how does Jesus respond? Martha, you are worried you are anxious and you are troubled. Other translations, you know, you are worried and you are upset by many things. Too many things. In other words, you're insecure, Martha. You know, why do you feel inadequate, Martha? You know, why do you always feel unsure about where you stand with me? You know why she feels unsure? Deep inside are human souls. There is this voice that tells us that if we live a good life, if we just live a good life, then God will bless us. That's how the world works. That if we're just good, if we live a good life, then God will accept us. Then God will love us. Then God will bless us. And so when we do good works, in reality, we believe God owes us. That's why we abandon the church when things don't go our way. That's why we abandon prayer, we abandon scripture, we abandon Jesus altogether when things don't go our way. And, you know, there, when you do that in the church, in your service, then it becomes a very joyless existence. You become very anxiety-ridden. You always question the point of what you're doing. Why am I doing this? I mean, no one cares. God doesn't care about what I do here. That's the first question. That's the first comment. You know, do you not care? Now, the second thing she says to Jesus is what? Tell her then, tell Mary to help me. The next thing we always do, Martha points at Mary. The moment in her frustration, in her irritation, she compares herself with Mary. You know, she thinks that she has superiority over Mary because she's doing what she, should, what she thinks we should do. Serve Jesus with all our hearts, you know, and, and, you know, we should be working and serving and we shouldn't just be sitting there and just, you know, pray, well, uh, this isn't a time for piety. You know, we could do that privately, right? So she thinks she has superiority over Mary because of her work. Martha believes she's earned favor from God, from Jesus, because of her works, you know? And that, and that doesn't give her joy. It actually made her angrier if you look at her. You know, uh, when you're comparing your work, your success, your wealth, your looks, your figure, your accomplishments, the things, you know, you can easily look at another person and say, oh, I'm better. God accepts me more because I give more. It's, that's one of the, you know, number one ways that we compare ourselves in the church. Well, because I serve more. These people are worth less, I'm worth more. 
And it's easy to make fun of people when we do that. It's easy to compare ourselves to people who are not as accomplished, you know, who are not as wise seemingly, who are not as pious seemingly. It's easy to be the other person, to look at yourself and say, you know, I don't pray like that person. I'm not as wise as this person. I'm not as consistent as this person, so I must be worth less. It's easy to do that. We compare ourselves all the time. And, and that, what's the result of that? Frustration, dissatisfaction in the church, you know, in God, insecurity. It's why, why do we do that? It's because Martha doesn't experience regularly the intimacy that she has, that she could have with Jesus. Martha's working to be seen for her sacrifice. But she's frustrated because she has no relationship with Jesus. She doesn't feel the relationship. You know, Mary is working, but she immediately leaves to be with Jesus. Why? Because she has a relationship with Jesus. Martha's using Jesus to get a sense of worth. Mary is intimate with Jesus. Jesus is her worth. One person is working to get a relationship. The other person stops working because she has a relationship. That's the irony. When do you pray? When do you read the Bible? What leads you to serve? Why do you do what you do? Do you do it to get close to Jesus? You know, I need to serve in order to feel like I'm a part of something, to feel close to God. Is that how you feel? You know, do you want to get some, you know, if I don't serve, I feel guilty. If I'm not at church, I feel guilty. If I'm not at community group, I feel guilty. Is that why you do what you do? Because if you're doing that, you're still living in fear. And when, you don't live in, when you're living in fear, there's no joy. And that's why you're always busy. That's why you always have to keep yourself busy. And that's why you're so frustrated and you're irritable. And, and there's no joy. And you're comparing yourself with other people. And your prayer life is terrible. And you're not reading your Bible. You're just being religious. You don't have to pray to be religious. Sometimes when you, by not praying, by not reading the Bible, by not going to church, you're still religious because you feel guilty. You don't feel like you deserve to be there. Religion is outside in. I have to live right in order to feel right. I have to live right on the outside. I have to look right on the outside in order to feel acceptable to God on the inside. And when you do that, your work drives your joy. And when you live, your life, and when you live like that, you're always working. You're never going to find rest. You're always going to be working, and there's no joy. The irony here is that it's in the context of a meal. In those ancient times, much like we see in the Asian cultures today, in, the, in those ancient times, you only invited people over if they were intimate to you, if, with you, if they were close with you. You never invited strangers over your home. It wasn't a way to introduce or get acquainted with people. We do that more today in our Western society. But in those days, a meal, especially you know, when you served and when you were preparing and spending all that time, you know, think about a lot of us, when the pastor comes over your home, you know, what your parents would go through, the extent that your parents would go through to prepare that meal. You, know, you only did it with people that you felt that you wanted to be intimate with, close with. It was elaborately prepared for that reason. But Martha, in this intimate context, there was no intimacy. And that's a lot of us here in this room. You're in the context of intimacy, and you don't, you don't experience it with God. You know, you don't feel that intimacy. You don't feel God's embrace. You're in the right context, but because of your agenda or because of your preconceptions, you don't feel the embrace of God. You know, the gospel is inside out. I am accepted by God. I am loved by God. 
I am, I am embraced by God. And based on that, I want to serve. In other words, your joy drives your work. Your joy drives your service. And if you look at Mary, you know, she's working. She's working. Oh, she's joyful. She's working. And then Jesus comes. And the joy, she just leaves. And she's able to sit by Jesus. And, you know, and she's bucking all these social trends. It's not like she intended, you know, by doing this, it will be written in Scripture. And as a result, I will be remembered for all time. No, she was just working. She was working. And she was serving. And then Jesus comes, and she wants to go be with Jesus. And she's bucking social trends in the process. And she's, you know, everything that's expected of her as a woman, she leaves behind. She just wants to learn from Jesus. It's a remarkable confidence. Mary's got this remarkable confidence in such a mundane story, in such a boring context. Yet look at the confidence of Mary. And because of that, she's lifted up, and she's actually remembered thousands of years later now how do you do that how do you get that this is the last point the gospel gives you an intimacy true intimacy real intimacy you just have to pay attention you just have to focus what i mean by that is you know what prayer is prayer is dependence you know what bible study is you know community groups are it's a it's an intimate context For doing what? Taking the time to listen to God, to sit at Jesus' feet, to focus, to listen, to pay attention. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. And this is going to be the crux. This is where the hard saying comes from, right? Look at the gentleness of Jesus. He's rebuking Martha. And really what he's doing is he's counseling her because he's speaking into her heart. He's speaking into what her heart needs to hear. You know, not needs to hear as in like you need to hear this because, you know, you, I want to correct you. But what, he, what she needs to hear to be comforted, to be brought back in, to be set free. You know, he could have easily said, Martha, you are a fool. Or Martha, you know, you don't, you don't get it, Martha. Ma- look at your sister. Mary gets it. You know, and, and who knows where Lazarus was, but Mary gets it. But Martha, you're a fool. He could have easily said that, but he doesn't say that. Instead, you know, he knows Martha's broken. Martha's so broken up in her frustration and in her irritation and in her anxiety, you know, and she's already hurting, you know, so, so you know, she's like, oh, I'm not seen, I'm not noticed here. What does Jesus do? Jesus counsels her. And he begins by saying, Martha, Martha. And, uh, you know, we read that and we say, oh boy, he's, he's becoming stern. This is the stern part of Jesus, the rebuke. And it seems really, really harsh. But really, whenever you see two words put together like that in confronting somebody, Martha, Martha, the doublet in Greek or, or, or in, that, in that culture, those words were used to magnify. You know, here we have good, better, best. But in those days, that's not the way they wrote. They wrote good, 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 and every once in a while, and you know, every once in a while, you would experience, if you're lucky, once in a lifetime, good, good, good. And so here, you know, it was always in the, this emotional context, this emotion with emotional content, Martha, Martha. There's this deep emotional content there, you know, that also oftentimes gets lost. And it's always when you're addressing a person, you know, in the Bible, whenever you see that that doublet. In the context of addressing a person, it's always done in tears. It's always done with crying. I'm going to give you some examples. Psalm 51. David had sinned. You know, he had Uriah killed, right? And he had taken on Uriah's wife because he had gotten her pregnant before uh, Uriah had died. And so, so many sins there. 
you know, and, and he's taken Bathsheba in as his wife, and Nathan comes up and accuses him of his sin. And Psalm 51 is his confession prayer. It's his prayer of repentance. And, and in verse 4, he says, against you, you only. You, you. David is weeping. David is crying. I'll give you another example. Later on in David's life, his son had conspired to kill him, to overthrow him. It was a res- there was an insurrection, a, resurre- uh, a revolution taking place, a civil war really taking place in Israel. And at the time, they didn't know who it was that was conspiring. And through a series of events, they realized it was Absalom, his son, and Absalom is dead. And David cradles Absalom and says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Emotional language. He's weeping. He's crying. Jesus is standing in front of Jerusalem. And in the book of Luke, he's crying. He's weeping. He's he's weeping, it says. He wept for the city. He cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If only you would know what it is that you could have. And yet it's going to be taken away from you. He's weeping. He's crying. Everything's with emotional content. And that's how you know that Jesus loves Martha. You know, he's not rebuking Martha. He loves Martha. And there's this intense emotional language, and you're going to see later on why, but he feels for her. He understands Martha and where her place is right now, where she is. And Jesus now responds with two statements, two things he says. First, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled. Too many things. You are worried and upset about too many things. The word worried or anxious is, it, it connotes being torn to pieces you know, and being all over the place, spread out in a thousand things. In other words, you know, he, he's saying, Martha, you are torn to pieces. You know, you, you're worried, you're torn, you're all over the place. And, and the word upset, you know, um, or troubled, it's the image of a boat being flipped over and so that the rudder is on, the, is on top and not on the bottom. And as a result, there's no direction and there's no power. There's no way to get to safety. And mainly what he's saying is, Martha, Mary chose one thing. That's all she needs. In fact, that's all you need. But you have chosen so many other things. You're all over the place. And you're torn. And you're in all these different directions. And you don't have yourself. You're disintegrating. You're all over the place. You're worried. And you're anxious. And you look like a leader, but you're really a slave. You know, you act like a leader, but you're really a slave. There's this inner disharmony. On the outside, you're being torn apart. You're all over the place. But on the inside, there's disharmony too. You've literally been flipped over, you know, and it's rendered you powerless, and you have no direction, and you're a slave, and you're unhappy. One thing I'm learning about cooking, you know, when you're cooking a meal, there has to be a cadence in your cooking. You ever watch Food Network? You know, these half-hour shows, they cook these elaborate meals, you know, and everything is done in a cadence. You never see these people in these shows doing everything all at once because if they did, they'd be like Martha. They'd be all over the place, right? They'd, they'd need like eight hands, right, like, like that. But here, you know, in cooking, in the Food Network, there's a cadence. You start with one thing, and as that's going, you start something else. And you keep these things in motion, you know? Otherwise, everything's going to need attention. You're going to burn out. There's no fun, you, and you wouldn't want to watch a show like that. You're like, this person doesn't ever act together, right? This, this person's a mess. Mary... There's only one thing that she needs. Jesus, that's all she needs. But Martha needs all these things. And Jesus is saying, you are being torn apart here. That service, that work that you're doing, 
You're unhappy because of the work, because you decided to need it. That's what's making you un- unhappy. You know, these things have become non-negotiables in your life. You, you don't need me. You need these things to prove yourself to me. And I don't need that. That's not a relationship. That's, a, that's an employer-employee type of relationship at best. And I need you to let this go. You're worried about and upset about many things. Now, the second thing he says is, Mary has chosen what is better. You know, in other words, and this, that was a hard saying, right? Mary has chosen what is better. You know, Martha's saying, I'm serving you. But Mary has chosen what is better. In other words, look at Mary. She knows that she could just rest in me. She knows that our relationship is not about what she does for me. Because how much can Mary really do for Jesus? Jesus is going to die. Right? He knows that. She just wants to be with Jesus. She can just rest in Jesus. And you know why? Because Jesus Jesus' way of saying, I would never overwork you. If you rest in me, I will ne- if you come to me, I will never overwork you. Your boss will overwork you. Your boss, in the interest of testing your limits, will work you to the ground. And once you burn out, they will find another person to work into the ground. That's how the world works. But I will never overwork you. That's Jesus. Jesus, I will never make you a slave. I will give you rest. I am your comfort. You will never have to worry with me. You will never have to worry about your place with me. You will never have to worry about where you stand with me. You will never have to worry about if you're good enough for me. You can rest in me. And Martha, here's why I didn't just answer you. You know, this is why I didn't send Mary over there to help you. You know, it's not because you didn't work hard enough. Just listen to me. I need you to take a break and listen to me. Mary sat and listened. It says that she sat at Jesus' feet. To be at somebody's feet means more than just, you know, it was, it was a, that's where the, you know, that's where the space was or something like that. To be at somebody's feet is to be under their authority. In the Psalms, God says, I will make your enemies a footstool at your feet. You know, that means that they will be placed under your authority. You know, what that means is Mary's not just listening, she's submitting to Jesus. She's taking in everything that Jesus is saying. She's absorbing it. She's soaking it in. And I'll tell you why. Because later on, this same Mary, you know, in John chapter 12, in Mark chapter 14, this is the same woman who broke into the party Later on, they hold this dinner for Lazarus and Jesus, really for Jesus, because Jesus had risen their brother, Lazarus, from the dead. And even there in John chapter um, 11, it mentions several times how much Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And they're having this dinner, and Mary comes in and takes basically their entire, um, you know, what we would constitute as our 401k today, and literally pours it, this this jar, this alabaster jar of expensive perfume, you know, her life savings really, she pours it over Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. That's the same Mary. And disciples rebuke her, but Jesus says, what are you doing? Don't rebuke her. He is preparing for my burial. In other words, Mary gets it, guys. That's what she's saying. He rebukes his disciples. Now, how's that possible? Jesus had been talking to his disciples about how he would be betrayed and how he'd be tortured and how he would die. He's been saying that throughout the Gospels. But the disciples never really heard it. You know why? They were interpreting Jesus through their grid. 
You know, whatever it was that Jesus was saying, they were taking it in and interpreting it their way. They had a grid and a way to conceive and perceive Jesus, and that's how they were interpreting Jesus' words. But Mary sat and listened. He listened to everything that Jesus said. She didn't process Jesus through her agenda. She processed her agenda through Jesus. She processed her character, her person. She listened and she submitted. And so she got it. She was at his feet, constantly at his feet. Even in John chapter 11, after Lazarus died, Martha comes over and says, Jesus, if you weren't here, Lazarus, if you were here earlier, Lazarus would still be alive. Mary comes and says the same thing, but comes by her feet. Mainly what she's saying is, I'm submitting to you. This is what I think, but I want to process it through you. And that's why even in John chapter 11, Martha gets a teaching, but Mary gets weeping. Take me there. Take me to Lazarus, where, he's, where he is. <sighs> Jesus says, until the end of time, what this woman did for me, you know, pours the perfume before my feet, will never be forgotten. She became great because she submitted, because she surrendered. What does that teach us? We have to submit to the word of God. You know, here's the reasons why we have to submit to the word of God, okay? You know, every one of us has a perception of the Bible. We have issues with the Bible. We have issues with God. We have issues with Jesus. But think about it. Today, the way you view the Bible, the way you view God, your wisdom will be much more mature tomorrow, even a year from now, compared to today. A year from now, you're going to look back and you're going to say, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is what I used to think about God. It's so much deeper. It's so much more rich than that. You know, if you're a skeptic, five, attend church. Just keep coming. You know, because over time, you're going to realize that, wow, like, this is, I know more about God today than I ever did. That's a spirit working in your life. It makes you wiser. Your view of scripture will be much more mature tomorrow than it is today. And that's why you can't just, you know, not submit, you can't, you can't walk away from the word. Stick with it. That's one reason to submit. But, but the other thing is, you know, and you shouldn't hold too strongly to your objections of the word or of God or of Jesus for those reasons. But the thing is, even Jesus submitted to the word. That's really another reason why we should submit. Even Jesus submitted to the word of God. Jesus submitted to God's word. You know, Jesus is teaching Martha. And, you know, she's angry. She's irritable. She's worried. She's upset. Um, and what is he doing? He's trying to bring her back in. And he's saying, you know, your frustration, you know, listen carefully to this, your, your, your frustration, this experience right now, what we're going through, it's to teach you. Without me, there is no meal. Without me, there is no celebration. Without me, there will not be joy. Without me, you will never understand what it means to really, really have intimacy in life. Mary knew that. Mary knew that because she paid attention. And, 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 God, and Jesus understands. You know, he says, I understand. I know what it means to work and to become a slave. I know what it's like to work and to not be noticed. I know what it's like to serve with everything that you've got, to give up everything that you are, and to be abandoned, to be forsaken. You know why? Because I will do that for you on the cross. Immediately after this passage, if you have your Bibles, you'll see that immediately after this passage, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. It's the Lord's Prayer, the famous Lord's Prayer. And he begins with our Father. Those are the first two words. Our Father. It's so intimate. 
Do you know that in the Muslim faith, there are 400 ways to call God, to call on God, but not one of them call on God as Father. Jesus begins with the only prayer that he's taught us how to pray. He says, start by calling him our Father. So intimate, so dependent. When you have a father, there's intimacy and there's dependency, right? As a child, you are dependent, wholly reliant. He calls God his father. And he says, that's how you should call God. You should call God your father. You know what a father is? A father is somebody who gives unconditional love. You can't get divorced from your father. You can divorce yourself from your wife, you know, from your husband, but you can't divorce yourself from your father. Not really. You know, a father means, in in a father, you have status, you have a name, you have uh, an inheritance with the father. And, and Jesus is saying, I want you to have that kind of intimacy with God. You know, he doesn't say mother. You know why? Because women had no social standing in, that, in those days. That's why Paul later on, the Apostle Paul says, in Jesus, we are all sons. And he's talking to women. He's saying, you who have no social standing right now culturally, you are a son. You are a firstborn son in God's eyes. That's the kind of intimacy that he wants us to have. Jesus had that kind of intimacy. He had that kind of relationship with God. Jesus was submissive to the Father. Through every trial, through every suffering, through every need, through every suffering, he depended on God, his Father. You know, Jesus lived a very, very hard life, suffering of a life, you know, but he was God's son. Matthew chapter 8, he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, I don't have a home. I'm homeless. I don't have a place. I'm the son of God, and yet I don't have a place. I don't have a home. I'm completely homeless. Mary had a place. Mary was known. Jesus says, I don't have a place. In Mark chapter 1, the heavens open up. Jesus is being baptized, and as he's rising out, the spirit of God descends on him, you know, and the heavens open up, and God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But immediately after, what happens? He's sent into the wilderness. He's suffering. And in the wilderness, he's being tempted by Satan. He's being tormented. And you know what he's doing? Even there, he's quoting scripture. On the journey to the cross, the people are weeping. He's carrying his cross up to Calvary, and the people are weeping, and they're crying, and he stops. And you know what he does? He doesn't say, you know, can, can I get some help here? That's not what he says. He says, he's quoting from Hosea. He's processing his suffering through scripture. And on the cross, there's the ultimate wilderness, the ultimate wilderness, the ultimate suffering, the ultimate homelessness. What does he do? He's quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God. There you see the doublet. In the face of a person, my God, my God. In that context, he's weeping and he's crying, but he's quoting scripture. God has abandoned him but he's still processing his life through scripture. He says, why have you forsaken me? You've abandoned me. You've rejected me. I am empty. I'm working. I'm laboring. And yet my life is empty. I've sacrificed, but I'm not seen. I've labored, but there's no love for me. Why did he do that? You know, the cross is the only time that Jesus didn't refer to God as his father. Completely dissociated, 
disowned by the Father. Why? So that we could be owned. Rejected by the Father so that we could be accepted by the Father. Homeless before the Father so that we could have a place. Completely guiltless, yet taking on all guilt. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He became sin. Why? So that we who are sinful, we who are guilty, could become sinless, righteous before God. He's laboring and he's groaning on the cross. You know, on the cross he's working. He's twisting, he's turning, he's groaning, he's sweating, he's weeping. He's working. Why? So that we could find rest in him. In him. Do you believe that? Do you get that? Jesus on the cross was working not to be accepted by God. He's not saying, God, see me. He's saying, God, you've rejected me. Jesus working on the cross so that he would be rejected by God, so that we could be accepted by God. And yet he dealt with his deepest, most horrible parts of his life with scripture so that we could be loved, we could be accepted, we could be embraced by God. Jesus processed God's word through scripture, through and through, so he could be our advocate. He could be our substitute. He said, you know, thy will be done. Why? And then he teaches us and says, you know, you, you know what you need to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Be like me. That's why you can trust him. And Mary did. Mary trusted him. And Mary trusted him, and she became great. Thousands of years later, they're still talking about Mary. You know? And we know that Mary had to be a woman so they could bug all social trends, new agenda. Mary has a new confidence because she experienced the intimacy that comes with God. She sits at his feet, submits to him so that one day she could kiss his feet, so one day she could pour perfume over his feet, so one day she could wipe his feet with her hair, so one day she could anoint his feet, so she could become that intimate, that close to Jesus. Take the time to listen to Jesus, to focus on Jesus. Look at Jesus' character. Look at his gentleness. Look at his embrace. Focus on his work, what he's done for us on the cross. That's the only thing that's going to get rid of the emptiness when you are tired and when you are working. Do you get that? Let's pray.